from KQED. You're listening to Queued Up, storytelling with heart. I'm John Sepulveda. Last week, we heard some pushback on our series from a member of Antioch's black middle class, woman who defends Antioch police. In this chapter of our story, we step into the shoes of Antioch youth and the town's police chief, who have very different perspectives on law and order in Antioch. Here's Sonia Dirks with Chapter 6 of American Suburb. Thank you. I'm just going to hop right in. Did you specifically want to be a police officer in Antioch? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, for me, um, I grew up uh, in Brentwood, which is just a town over. And, um, you know, it was, uh, I had a bunch of friends in Antioch, um, you know, hanging out here as a kid, middle school, high school, and just kind of seeing how the, how the city grew, how it's yeah. changed. Officer Midas is starting off his swing shift. It's a sunny afternoon as he patrols the streets of Antioch. Those streets look very different than when he was growing up. This is a busy city for sure. I mean, I can say I've been here less than four years and I mean, to be honest, like, I mean, if you, you know, name something and I mean, I've, uh, I've pretty much been in it, so, yeah. The city's population has exploded. It was a white working class town on the banks of the Delta. Now, it's increasingly diverse. You know, certain areas in Antioch, to be honest, where, you know, I used to like bring my bike or something and ride my bike around. You know, you just don't see kids doing that anymore. And now I'm patrolling those areas. I used to kind of hang out and then arresting people like right where I used to just like stand on the corner, you know, and it's, 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 it's kind of a trip, so. Welcome to American Suburb, stories about the flip side of gentrification told through one town. As suburbs change and start to look different, how do police departments respond? You cannot make me believe that wasn't an exodus. You moved from Oakland to Little Oakland uh, in Antioch. We don't hear from the people who have been, have been displaced. People are being forced into the aging suburbs, such as Ferguson where policing is really the only governmental service that's growing. If we don't stop this internet lynching, and if we don't come together and have serious dialogue, what you saw in Ferguson will happen in Antioch. I see it coming. I'm Cynthia Dirks, and this is Chapter 6, Reasonable Fear. Reasonable Fear. It's the standard by which police justify use of force. If an officer is afraid for his or her life, or for someone else's life, that officer can use deadly force. But fear isn't really a reasonable feeling. It's one of the most primal emotions we humans have, beyond the thinking layers of the brain. It's all response. And in some communities of color, there's fear of police. Antioch Police Chief Alan Contando is, in a word, charismatic. He's tall and square-jawed, formal but funny. And he's honest about the fact that around a decade ago, when the demographics of Antioch changed, some people were very wary of police out here. 
And I remember um, there was this one particular call where this um, African-American kid hit his African-American girlfriend who worked at the movie theater, and he left. And um, I was one of the first officers on scene, and another officer came to cover me. And I remember the feeling in the community as, as our diversity was changing is when uh, we stopped this kid, um, a couple cars stopped, and it was African-American families kind of watching what was going on. You know, like, hey, how are you going to treat this kid? And, you know, today... If we see something like that, we have people stopping, black, white, Hispanic, saying, okay, well, we're going to help the police if something happens, we're going to watch, or they just keep going. Because there isn't that concern of the police are doing something they shouldn't do, which, which I think is a testament to our police department, but also a testament to our community, how we really have come together from a diversity standpoint. He says the police have a good relationship with the community. They've worked hard to build trust. This conversation about police and use of force and trust, it's happening across the country. A lot of the places where high-profile shootings of black men have happened are in suburbs. Ferguson, where Michael Brown was killed in 2014. Philando Castile was killed in 2016 in a suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. And Trayvon Martin who was shot in 2012 by a self-proclaimed neighborhood watch captain. He was killed in Sanford, a Florida suburb. And then there's this. For the first time in history, more African-Americans live in suburbs than anywhere else. But as the demographics of suburbia change, are the police departments that patrol them also able to change? Suburbs like Antioch are navigating all of this. And that means tackling tough conversations about race and policing. Police brutality, use of force. Does it happen a lot? Yes, I've seen shaking head, yes. Where's it happening? Antioch Police Chief Contando is talking to a group of college students at the local community college, Las Madonos. The students are a diverse group of about 25 young people sitting around tables in a long white classroom with bright lights, a giant whiteboard. They are focused intently on the police chief. Police brutality. What is, what is police brutality? And when you say excessive force, what does that mean? He tells a student to get up and grips his elbow. Is that excessive? No. Weren't you getting up by yourself? Yeah, I was jumping. Oh, you were jumping. <laughs> I like that. Why can't more people be like you? No, I'm kidding. Contando uh, is a jokester. He's the kind of guy who introduces himself to the class as from South Central, waits a beat, and then says, South Central Pleasant Hill, which is an affluent white suburb in the Bay Area. He gets the laugh. Okay. Who knows who Rodney King is? Who doesn't know who Rodney King is? Be honest. A few hands tentatively raise up. Most of these students would have been babies back then. So Contando tells them Rodney King was severely beaten by Los Angeles police in 1991. Contando says that was a pretty cut-and-dry case of police brutality. But today, he wants to make the point that police brutality cases aren't always that simple. So if I hit you with the baton and someone's watching it, is that excessive? So a lot of times officers won't use the right amount of force. And they keep hitting and hitting and hitting, and it looks terrible. Because no use of force looks pretty. Do we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. But we, have to, but we have to use it. Contando comes as a guest speaker to classes every semester. It's not just outreach. 
wait till the end of his presentation, and he'll try to recruit half the class. Because Contando wants to have a more diverse police department in Antioch. He believes a more diverse department will benefit the town. He also wants to share how things like the shootings of unarmed black men that have been so much in the news recently, how those things happen. They're not loaded. Contando takes out two fake orange guns. He taps them together. All right, so here's what we're going to do. He hands one of the orange fake guns to one of the students and explains the exercise. Okay, okay. so here's your duty weapon. Okay, what I'd like you to do is go stand over by that door over there. Okay, and I want you to go stand over that door and look at me. Okay? And for the sake of, for the sake of this um, scenario, you're a police officer and you are being dispatched to the corner of LMC and this projector screen of a white male. He's basically describing the suspect as himself. White guy, blue shirt, that's Contando. That is reportedly drug dealing and is possibly armed with the handgun, okay? And with that scenario, I want you to handle it how you think a police officer should handle it, okay? If you should have to pull out your gun for any reason, you need, and you're gonna use it, you need to point it at me and you need to say bang. Did you get that bang? That means someone's dead. And every time you say bang, the gun is going off and you are going, that means you've shot me. First volunteer, a young woman, she moves nervously towards Contando. <laughs> Officer, why do you have your gun out? Why do you have your gun out? What, what I do? Do you, do you want to see my license? Bang. Okay, you're, okay Officer, you're, you're dead. Second volunteer, a young man. Hey, what's up, officer? He takes a more confident here, approach. Buddy. You want to see my license? Yeah. Hey. Bang! Oh, I Contando, playing the drug dealer, shoots another student playing the cop. It goes on like this, with Contando shooting all the student cops, priming them to expect that every time he offers to show his license, he'll pull out that orange gun instead. So far, Contando, as drug dealer, is 3-0. He's killed three cops today, just on a bang, bang, bang shooting spree. Let's see if I can, if I get four people today. Finally, another young man plays the cop. But here's the twist you probably see coming. This time, Contando hands his gun off to one of the students. So when he reaches for his license and the guy shoots him, he's unarmed. Hear that? The young guy says, guess I'm a violent cop, I'm sorry. He's just shot an unarmed man. It's a bit of a heavy-handed scenario. And the students are all laughing nervously because it's so absurd. Contando looks so much like a cop. Square jaw, salt and pepper hair, deliberate movements, that when he acts like a belligerent suspect, it is kind of funny. But underneath all that laughter, what Contando wants is for them to experience the real dangers and fears police officers face the split-second decisions they have to make, and to preach a little about how police actions can be misinterpreted. I do that scenario because sometimes things happen and the media immediately spins it, and and nobody has the full story yet. The media. Me. Which 
I have to say, is a totally different perspective. Because oftentimes after an officer-involved shooting, I feel like I'm getting spun by police who give their official account, which has, on more than one occasion, been disproven when there is video footage. One of the young men who role-plays one of the police officers who gets shot by Contanto is Julio Alvarado. And I feel like when police officers take this extra step and kind of take off the badge, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking, to just sit down and talk to people, I think that's definitely going to make a change, because a necessary change at that, because I feel that there's a lot of people angry. Julio trails off. You can sort of hear him trying to thread the needle between being like, this guy, Contando, he's a good guy, a good cop, it's great that he came to class today, and I get what he's saying, how stuff can go down, but it's not quite enough. Like, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps, and I know what it's like to be in that kind of situation. The difference is that if I were to pull the trigger to an unarmed civilian, I wouldn't see the light of day. But for some reason, there's still people out there, police officers, who are getting in away with it. Whether it was sanctified at that moment or not, there's still so many, so much media coverage that is making it seem otherwise. Making it seem like something is really wrong with policing in America, especially when people of color are involved. He's just heard Contando's pitch, that police are misunderstood. But Julio says maybe the chief is missing something, too. I feel as if today he, he's probably a man. Doesn't need to be a white man, but he's just a man looking at himself and saying, I'm not part of the problem, so this problem probably doesn't exist. But it does. It does. It If people don't see it, it's because they don't want to see it. I want to dip back into the class for a second, where Contando is talking to the students about, well, just listen. Black Lives Matter. Anyone heard of that before? Almost everyone nods or raises their hands. If these young people aren't familiar with Rodney King, they sure know who Michael Brown is. Black Lives Matter is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' contribution to society, our humanity, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. He reads some language straight from the Black Lives Matter website. Does everyone buy into that? The class sort of looks at him confusedly, as if they don't know the right answer. You believe that this is absolutely correct. Is there anyone that doesn't? Anyone? I don't. It's hard to hear, but Contando tells them he doesn't agree with what Black Lives Matter is saying. He believes the statement that black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise is an extreme one. You do believe, are are you targeting a certain group or race for demise. Contando says he and the police aren't doing that at all. He believes police are doing their jobs, protecting and serving all citizens. That's a perspective that a lot of law enforcement has is we agree black lives matter, but all lives matter. 
He tells the students a bit about high crime in some black communities and how police are actually, in responding and trying to solve those crimes, at the forefront of making Black Lives Matter. And I always tell people, you know, if you're you're an African-American male and you're scared of police, then you might be more scared of the African-American male sitting next to you because you're more likely to be harmed by that individual than a police officer. Contando is not the first person to make this argument. But what it misses is a larger point some people have, that police brutality against people of color is state-sanctioned violence. State-sanctioned violence against black skin that stretches back to slavery, to the rape and murder of African Americans, to Jim Crow, to the Ku Klux Klan hanging black men for sport, for all to see. Through this lens, police brutality against bodies of color is not the work of a few bad cops, but rather a pattern of repression and aggression that is rooted in the very founding of our country. It's a cruel limb on the tree of America's original sin. A few weeks after the class, I sat down to talk more with Contando. He says, if people are afraid of the police, come and talk to them. Police officers are human. Sometimes they do make mistakes. I will tell you what I would tell anybody is if if you have a fear of the police, then then you should be coming to talk to the police department. And and I have I have an open door. I will talk to anyone said if they have a complaint. This is what happened in Antioch. There is no outside police commission. There's no citizens review complaint board. If someone has a complaint about police, they register it with the police department and the police department investigates it. Actually, if they make a complaint, I probably won't talk to them until after the complaint's investigated because I'll be the ultimate decision maker on on the discipline uh, for that individual involved or individuals involved. But some people are increasingly skeptical of police departments' ability to police themselves. They say it's a built-in conflict of interest. Contando insists it's in his police department's best interest to get rid of violent or abusive cops. And he says if people really believe they have a valid complaint of police misconduct, there is always the courts. You know, if someone feels that they're wrong, they still have a civil remedy to, to go after um, uh, these, these, the officers that they feel wrong them. Civil as in lawsuit. When we return the story of some Antioch residents who felt they were wronged by police and who turned to the legal system and each other to get justice. Stay with us. I don't think that's necessary. It's one person. A violent arrest in the East Bay has some claiming police brutality. This is YouTube video of Antioch police arresting a man on Tuesday afternoon. I thought it was overkill. I thought it was, I was disgusted by it. Several witnesses say the man who appeared to be mentally disturbed was handcuffed while police used a taser on him and hit him with a baton. That is from a news report about an incident in 2014. There have been others, lawsuits filed against the Antioch Police Department for excessive use of force. These kinds of cases are pretty par for the course in any metro police department. But civil rights lawyer John Burris says in the past decade or so, 
he's become increasingly aware of Antioch. Certainly the demographic change has affected the quality of policing um, there. I think it has become uh, more disrespectful of African Americans. It's almost trying to run them out of town. Burris is known to many as the Johnny Cochran of the Bay Area. He's known for taking on civil rights cases against police, most famous for his work to reform the Oakland Police Department. But he says the future fight, the new front lines of police brutality, is no longer large city departments like Oakland, but these smaller, changing suburbs like Antioch. He says the number one issue out here is heavy-handed use of force. What a real tragedy, that the officers will beat people up and then charge them, and then they will plead to one of the charges. Burris says that's a tactic he's seen used in the past by Oakland police. And that's old, old school. Burris is currently suing the city of Antioch on behalf of the family of a man who was killed in police custody after he called 911 during a psychotic episode. The suit claims police handcuffed the man and held his face in the dirt, killing him. A witness reported his last words were, I can't breathe. Burris says it's hard to gauge what's really going on with use of force, because he says oftentimes those that are on the receiving end of excessive police force, well, they're charged by police with crimes like resisting arrest, and they plead out, meaning their stories don't come to light. So all he sees are cases from those that have the wherewithal to fight. People like Catherine Wade. This officer on the back of him got off of him. He let his legs, see his legs bent up, he got off of him. Catherine says she saw her son beaten by Antioch police officers right in front of her. She's showing me the pictures she took that day. They beat him up. My son had blood all over his face and stuff. You know, in this picture, you could see the blood. Catherine didn't turn to Burris for her case. She has a different attorney. He confirms what Burris told me. He says based on the anecdotal evidence of phone calls he gets, Antioch feels like a trouble spot. He's heard more and more stories like Catherine's. Catherine says that afternoon was like any other. Her son, Malad Baldwin, was sitting in their parked car right in front of their house, waiting to take his mom to a doctor's appointment. It was a warm, sunny day. Malad had his baseball cap pulled down to keep the sun off of his face. He put his headphones on and reclined back in his seat, just resting, while he waited for Catherine, who was in the kitchen. I heard a boom. So I walked from the kitchen into the family room, like this here, and the front door was open, the living room, the front door was open. And I walked out the door, and that's when I saw my son. Police officers had come racing down the block. They'd gotten a call about someone drunk in the street. A neighbor had complained, said the guy was black. When they got to Catherine's house and saw her son in the car, Catherine says they grabbed him. Police claim that Malad attacked them. When Catherine got outside, her son was lying on his stomach, an officer on top of him. He wasn't moving. And the officers were saying, shut the F up, shut the F up and go in the house. I'm like, what is wrong? He's unconscious. He's knocked out. You know, call the MLMs. He kicked my son's legs open with his legs. 
pulled out his flashlight and started beating him between his butt cheeks, just real hard. And I just, I failed it. I, I, I fell. I just, when I saw my son, he grasped up like he was taking the last breath and Jupiter's blood just flew out his mouth and he went back out. The whole incident felt like it took seconds, but then time slowed down. They held him in this position again for some time and then you can hear sirens. And so um, the officers were lined up in front of us, like, you know, hands on the gun, like it's a riot. You know, like they lined up for a riot. I'm saying, what are you doing? None of us have criminal records here. Why are you pushing us back like we, is we doing something? And the sergeant, he came over. He said, well, you know, Annie, I got bad boys. I said, what does that mean? And he said, like I said, Annie, I got bad boys. So you don't have to candy coat it to me. When you said, boy, that's offensive to me. I grew up in Mississippi. Catherine came to Antioch from the Bay Area city of Richmond in the mid-2000s. She says Antioch felt different. She says she didn't feel welcome out here. Catherine's son was arrested by police after the incident for resisting arrest and assaulting an officer. He was found not guilty by a jury. Catherine and her son have filed a civil rights lawsuit against the city of Antioch. Their trial is scheduled to start on June 12th. Catherine says as a result of his altercation with Antioch police, her son has headaches all the time. He's paranoid, depressed, he can't work, and she's become his full-time caregiver. What happened to my son and what I experienced that day, that whole, that whole situation, it's changed my life. There's one thing Catherine keeps repeating that I can't get out of my head. She says, they weren't ready for us. They weren't ready for us. And what she means, I think, is that the city wasn't ready for someone like her and her son. Hi, Frank, how are you doing? That's good, you know this is Catherine Wade, right? <laughs> Since what happened to her son in 2014, Catherine has found a small group of other people with similar stories. You did? Well, I'm here sitting with, is it such? Sandia. Sandia from KQED. They formed a sort of ad hoc support group, advocating for each other and for a greater awareness of what they say happened to them at the hands of Antioch police. There's no Black Lives Matter chapter in Antioch. There are few activists operating locally. In a world where a tweet can set off a protest hundreds strong in places like Oakland or Richmond, there's something eerie about the silence of activism here. And can I give her your number? Because she's looking to do interviews here in Antioch. One of the people Catherine has gotten to know is Franklin Sterling. Like Catherine's son, he was beaten up by Antioch police. His incident happened in 2009. Unlike Catherine and her son, Franklin has lived in Antioch his entire life. He says when he was growing up, the town was different. It was mainly a, a white town, basically. I'm brown. I, um, even a friend told me the other day when he ran to me after a long time, was like, well, yeah, but you just, you know, everyone considered you white, you know? It was just kind of like one of those type of things, you know? And I didn't even think of my own um, indigenous blood at that time, really. So I didn't realize I was a brown person, really. I was just kind of hung out there. He says in his experience back then, when he was caught misbehaving, like drinking at a construction site with friends, the police didn't rough anyone up. 
You know, it's kind of like the warning, let go or call the parents or something like that, you know, as kid stuff. Franklin's Native American. He's got long, dark hair, a baseball cap often perched on his cragged face. My dad was like a big um, steel mill worker. He worked his entire life. Like he's like dark brown, you know, uh, Indian. He left the reservation young, came out here, um, he was in the Navy, really young. And um, when he got out in his early 20s, he just became a worker at the steel mill in Pittsburgh, worked there his entire life. So when he left there, you know, he was like a foreman and stuff. So, you know, my dad knows people around town and he's golfed with the chief, you know. His dad, he says, knows Chief Contando. I think they've golfed on occasion. My dad knows who he is. Yeah, It's a small town, you know. Franklin is trying to build an activist base out here, one that shines a light on policing in Antioch. He's also doing more than that. That's why we're meeting at the Rivertown Resource Center. He's showing me a project he's working on. There's a sort of small irony that the building that is now the Resource Center used to be the Antioch Police Station. We are in the Antioch Police Station, and it's been converted into the Rivertown Resource Center, like I said. Right now, we're back in the old area that was the jail cells, so here's the old bars. And um, you would be locked in there, and you could see on some of the walls people's old graffiti. Franklin takes me into the bowels of the old Antioch jail. The bars are still there, no longer locked. The white paint is peeling, holding scars that spill old, nasty secrets. And somewhere around here, I'm not sure where it's at, but like we were talking about the history of the town, the white, there's like the Nazi SS signs for the old bikers and stuff. Um, the Weiss Mach, whatever that is, basically a Nazi symbol. Oh, how can you, is that what I think it is? So it could be a KKK symbol scratched into the paint. He points to still visible rudimentary graffiti, racist symbols, KKK, swastikas. These date back decades, Franklin says, but they are telltale signs of a racist past. Okay, so right here, uh, room 19, old room 19. Um, You can just peek inside. So this would be where a prisoner would be um, let to set. And you can see there's a big pane of glass. And on the other side would be the lawyers or the family for people to visit. You can even see the old stool down there where they must have sat on. Yeah, that was the old stool. Of course, back um, when it was used for a jail, there'd be no furniture that was movable. You couldn't have anything that you could pick up. There's actually a cage on the ceiling. Franklin has a grant to transform this old jail facility into a local radio station. Yes, so of course I care. Radio bias. All right. Welcome to Full Circle, everyone, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Media Apprenticeship Program here at KPFA. Franklin works for KPFA, an independent, left-leaning, power-to-the-people radio station in Berkeley. On the radio, he's known as Free Willin' Franklin. We'll also get an update on a local battle for sacred ground right here in Berkeley. All that tonight on Full Circle, we're your host. I'm Free Will and Franklin. And I'm Audio Desperado. Now he's trying to bring community radio out here to Antioch. He's even taken the visiting room for prisoners, divided by glass, and turned it into a functional recording studio. It's pretty brilliant. Then on the other side, you can just kind of look through the glasses, a similar room, and just a couple of chairs where the family or the lawyers would sit. That room has been carpeted and padded out for the uh, the talent, so be it, or the guest. And we'll record our stories over there, conduct interviews and stuff. 
Franklin has been on both sides of the glass, not for the radio, in part because he was a small-level drug dealer for a while, marijuana mostly, and he got caught up in the meth epidemic that hit hard out here. For me, I got out of the, um, the drug game, basically the dealing. Um, I was addicted to meth for like 10 years. I got clean in 2005. And my life, you know, kind of associated away from police. I didn't experience them as much until, you know, the night of the attack on me and my friends. At the time he alleges the attack happened, he wasn't a kid misbehaving. And he had been clean for years. He says he was beat up by Antioch police after they were called to his house for a noise complaint. I was basically trying to just survive the flashlight blows because, um, It was just like hearing the blows to my head of aluminum flashlights. It was kind of like hearing a baseball bat on a ball aluminum bat. I was just like ducking and holding my head until I finally fell to the ground and I covered up and basically choked me unconscious. And I tried to tap his side, be like, you know, I'm, you know, I can't breathe. You know, I'm going, I'm going under. And he just held on until I actually went unconscious. This happened inside his home. Franklin says he and two of his friends were drinking at his house after a late night at the bar. He was charged with assaulting an officer and resisting arrest. The charges against Franklin were eventually dropped. A video taken by a neighbor played a key role in his defense. Franklin shows it to me. He acknowledges in the video he is yelling angrily at the two officers who came to his front door demanding entry. I'm not afraid to admit it. Yeah, I was yelling at him. But this is uh, the initial attack here. It's, it's no audio to it. So I'm inside right here, and this is my front porch where we're arguing. I tried to zoom in right here. So that's now them dragging me out on the porch, and you can see my little face will come in right there. And so here's where he's starting to wind up some punches oh, he on just me. punched you. Yeah, and so he does another one down below. He's dragging me down, and he jumps on my back and tries to get me in a hold. Um, but I stood up, and I ran in the house. And then we kind of disappeared around the corner, so it's really not much left to see, but comes back to grab his flashlight. And then this is like the last part of the video. You can see he just raises it up for a strike. You can see a man in uniform, silhouetted in the doorway, a long object in his hand. And then you see him bring it down as he disappears off camera. So yeah, it's a little disturbing. It's hard to watch sometimes, but I've gotten used to it now after the years. After court-ordered mediation, Franklin eventually got a settlement from the city of Antioch, $250,000, but no admission of wrongdoing by police. That's what got him started, to try and advocate against police violence. But it's been an uphill battle. And it does feel alone when you're out there and when you go to the um, city hall and you speak out about police brutality and the people that attend city hall really don't care about police brutality. They're there to speak about um, Antioch is big on the cat population. You know, I help trap cats. You know, I'm big on the cats, too, and I don't want thousands of cats around. Antioch is sort of known for its large feral cat community. Franklin has several strays he's taken in as pets. They wander around the garden of his new house, a craftsman located right downtown that he bought in large part with his settlement money. Still, it frustrates him that the cats have more voice from the public than the issue of policing, like that night he went to city council. The night I was there to complain about 
a man dying in police custody. There was five or six people that complained about cats dying in um, custody at the Antioch police station, which is um, controls the Antioch um, animal control. So the, while they were there complaining about these cats that died in custody or were mistreated in custody, I was there to talk about a human being that died in custody and no one really cared. Franklin says in his experience, people are scared to take a stand. And when they do... It's like if you speak up, it's the crickets in the city council. You don't get no one there to speak for you. It was hard to get my, even my own family to believe it, you know? Like, I told my mom, she's like, well, what'd you do? It's like I argued with the officer that they couldn't come in my house. And it just got worse and worse in that point. My point being is like, when you try to say something, you are by yourself out here. That can make it hard to change policy, too. One big thing Franklin is pushing for out here, body cameras for police. Antioch police don't yet have body cameras, even though the neighboring towns of Pittsburgh and Brentwood do. Antioch police chief Alan Contando says he isn't opposed to body cameras. But the argument goes that first, before they can put money to buying cameras, they need to hire more police. Chief Contando says he is trying to bridge community and police divides by reaching out to all the people in his town, going to classes and talking with young people from the community college, forming relationships with black pastors and the local NAACP, holding events like coffee with a cop and pizza with the police. Franklin and Catherine say that isn't enough. They say they would be too afraid to have coffee with a cop because they are still afraid of police based on what happened to them, a fear they say is reasonable. Chief Alan Contando says average citizens can't understand the tense situations his officers are put into every day. Catherine Wade and Franklin Sterling say police don't understand their fear. So maybe fear isn't reasonable, but both sides are asking for it to be understandable. And the space where that struggle for understanding is playing out, it's now the suburbs. This has been Queued Up Storytelling with Heart. I'm John Sepulveno. Next week, a group of drifters find their way to Antioch and set up camp just outside of town. Homeless in the suburbs. It's got a whole different feel to it. Right now, I'm, I'm just screwing around. You know, it's my choice to be out here. And what do I do every day? I go fishing. I, I, I golf in this field. Yeah, I don't think he's at the local country club. Trying to stay hidden in plain sight... That's next on American Suburb. Now, before you go, a correction from our story about Iris Archuleta last week. We said that she got a law degree from Stanford. She didn't, actually. We got that wrong. Iris is a proud graduate of San Francisco City College, Cal State East Bay, and the John F. Kennedy University College of Law. Our apologies. You can subscribe to American Suburb wherever you get your KQED podcasts. Have a great week.